Welcome to Living Chassidus. Together, let's live the Chassidus we learn. First of all, thank you for the opportunity to be back and be part of your amazing programs once again. Um, so we're talking about Hiskashos, about a connection to the Rebbe, and what I want to talk about tonight really is what we stand to gain, the benefit we stand to receive to, through Hiskashos, how Hiskashos can really change our lived experience and what it has to offer us. So to really understand what we can get, oh, I forgot, there's a live crowd, I can talk to you and I have to talk to the camera, it's much more fun that way. Um, so I want to sort of reframe what reality is, reframe and change the way we perceive existence, reality, the world, the universe, and by doing that, it'll set the tone and set the backdrop for really understanding how much having a real connection with the Rebbe, how much Iskashos really has to offer us. So for starters, I want to begin with a story. I really should have said this at the very beginning, but when the Alter Rebbe, when they came to take the Alter Rebbe to prison um, before Yutes Kislev happened, so Shmuel Munkas, who was a chassid, a big chassid, also known to be very much a joker and, you know, a, a trickster, but a, a very big chassid. And the Altreba asked him, you know, should I let them take me? Because he, the Altreba could have prevented them from being able to take him to prison had he wanted to. So he asked Shmuel Munkas, should I let them take me? Shmuel Munkas says, yeah, like, the, I mean, the Hebrew word is mimon of shach, either way. If you are really a Rebbe, like you claim to be, then whatever, they can't do anything to you, they can't hurt you, so what's the big deal? You can go to prison. And if you're not a Rebbe, Shmuel said, then how dare you write this book, Tanya, and take away so many people's pleasure in the physical world without being a Rebbe? So if you're not a Rebbe and you wrote that book without being a Rebbe, you deserve to go to prison. So either way, if you are a Rebbe, it doesn't matter. If you're not a Rebbe, you deserve to go to prison for writing Tanya without being a Rebbe. The question is, what does that mean? Like either what the Alter Rebbe writes in Tanya is true and it's good, or it's not. Why is it that only if he's not a Rebbe, then what he wrote in Tanya is bad, but if he is a Rebbe, then what he wrote, the same words and the same content is all of a sudden good. What's going on? So... We're going to come back to that at the end. And hopefully once we sort of paint this picture and, and deepen and broaden our perspective of reality um, and understand the role that Hiskashos to a Rebbe really plays, that'll become clear. So um, I want to talk about, I'm, I'm, I'm just pausing for a minute to think about, to process how much we're going to be able to fit in here. So I want to talk for a minute about medicine, about medication, right? What happens if a person has a headache? The first thing we do, we reach for some Advil, we reach for some Tylenol. And why do we take Advil or Tylenol? Because we know that when we take it, after a period of time, the headache goes away. That's why we take it. Um, now, what we know of, most of us, what we think of is, here's a pill, take the pill, headache goes away. But there's obviously a whole lot that happens in between us taking the pill and the headache going away that most of us aren't aware of and certainly don't think of every time we take some medication. And just to put some perspective on this, you know, if let's say someone has, I don't know, someone has some sort of chronic condition and the doctor gives a medication and their life depends on taking that medication twice a day and they come over to your house and they didn't forgot to take their medication this morning and they didn't bring it with them and they go to your kitchen and they pull out the Advil and they're like, oh, Advil, it looks exactly the same as my medication. Same shape, same size, same color. I'll just take that instead. Well, obviously that's not a very good idea, right? Why? Because what happens when we take medication, it's not the shape and the color that's taking away the headache or that's treating this person's medical condition. It's that 
Inside this pill, there is however much, let's say in an Advil, there's 200 milligrams of the active ingredient of ibuprofen, which is a substance, it's a chemical that has a specific chemical structure. And when we ingest it, it gets absorbed into the blood. And then those ibuprofen molecules, once they're in the blood, interact with our nerve cells and downregulate the sensation of pain. So we stop feeling the pain. The reason that happens is because inside this little pill is a very specific molecule with a very specific structure and a very specific function. And because of the specific structure and nature of this specific molecule, it takes away a headache. Taking a different pill that has the same shape and the same size and the same color, but has a different active ingredient inside it isn't going to have the same effect because it's going to have a different active ingredient, which has a different chemical structure and a different nature and reacts differently. And it's going to have a different impact on a different kind of cell in the body and could do something completely different, which might be catastrophic for a regular person with a headache. Right? So the, when we take medication and for most people, you know, a person goes to the doctor with a set of symptoms and the doctor asks, generally when a person goes to a doctor with some symptoms or very often the doctor starts asking questions. What about this symptom? What about that symptom? Have you felt this? Have you experienced that? And what the doctor's doing, right, when they ask that is they're trying to figure out what's going on. Because, you know, let's say that we go to the doctor and we describe two or three symptoms or one symptom. There may be 20 or 30 or 50 or 100 different conditions that could all have that same symptom or two or three symptoms. But each of those conditions has a different complete set of symptoms. So when the doctor says, oh, but what about this? And if you say yes or no, he may be able to eliminate 20 or 30 of the options or three options or whatever it is based on the yes or the no, and then ask another question, another question and keep on narrowing it down. Because each condition has a different collection of symptoms because there's something different that's happening in the body. And the reason the doctor needs to figure out what's going on is because the only way to treat something effectively is to treat the specific thing that's happening with the appropriate treatment for what's happening. So the doctor needs to figure out what is going on. Once we understand what's going on, we can figure out which treatment makes sense and is appropriate. And hopefully if we get all of that right and the treatment does its job effectively, the treatment will treat the condition and make a person feel better. Right? Because there is actually something that's real that's wrong in the body. Now we don't see it. And the doctor generally doesn't see it either unless they do some sort of, you know, x-rays or, imaging or whatever, but the doctor through the questions can figure out what's going on. There's something real. And the only, because the problem is something real that's happening inside the body, the only way to treat it is to use the appropriate treatment that's going to treat that issue in a real way, because there are real things that are happening. There are real issues that exist and we don't see them, but the fact that we don't see them doesn't make them any less real. And the fact that two pills look exactly the same, but have different names on the bottle and different directions on the bottle means that they need to be taken differently, even though just by looking at the pill, we don't see the difference, right? Because the way that the pill interacts is because of the actual nature of what's inside the pill. So in a way, this is a very real metaphor, a marshal for all the parts of reality that we don't see, right? It's like people will ask, you know, what difference does it make? A very common question. You know, why is it that if I light Shabbos candles one minute before sundown, it's a big mitzvah. And if I light it one minute after or a second after sunset, all of a sudden it's a sin. Same exact action, one second earlier, one second later, it goes from like being super amazing to super catastrophic. Like what difference does it make? It's one second. And the answer is, what difference does it make whether I take this pill or that pill? They're both the same size, shape, and color. The answer is it makes a very big difference because the size, shape, and color are the part of the pill that we see, but there's a lot going on here that we don't see. And that's the part that actually makes a difference and actually has an impact. And the reason it has an impact is because there's a real world inside our bodies with rules and way things work and systems, and the systems are real, and the wrong medication is going to have the wrong impact on that system. And it's the same thing. Lighting a candle 30 sec a second before sunset or a second after sunset looks and feels exactly the same, but it's not the same. It's like one pill or the other pill, different active ingredients, even though they look the same. One is a mitzvah, one's an avera. They look the same, but 
The reason that it's so important is because there's the same as with the body and with the medication, there's a lot to the picture that we don't naturally see, right? Our eyes see things that reflect light, basically. Well, technically our eyes see light. So when we see light reflected off something, it creates an image of that thing based on the light that's reflecting off of it. Anything that doesn't reflect light, we can't see, which is why we don't see air, for example generally speaking, because light passes straight through. It doesn't bounce off of it, so we don't see it. Now, the only thing that's going to reflect light is something that's physical, something that's made out of physical mass, out of atoms, out of protons, electrons, neutrons. Something that isn't physical in nature isn't going to reflect light, and we're not going to see it. And it's not going to have a taste because our taste buds taste molecules. If it's not made out of molecules, we're not going to taste it and we're not going to hear it, etc. So anything, if something isn't physical, we're not going to sense it. We're not going to perceive it naturally. But that doesn't mean it's any less real. It's not physical. But if we accept that that which physically exists is only a subset of everything that exists, it's one of the layers of reality. It's not the entirety of reality then something can be non-physical and still be real. And that would include angels. It would include everything spiritual. So the same way that there's a whole lot going on inside the body and there's things inside the pill that we don't see. And those are really the things that actually matter and count and make a difference. There's a whole lot to the picture of existence that we don't see. All the spiritual layers of reality we don't see but it doesn't mean that they're any less real than the physical layer of reality. It's just that we don't naturally perceive it. But because it's real, the same way that taking a pill has a real impact on the body by means of things that we don't see, but we're all well aware of how important it is to be careful with it. It's the exact same thing. We do a mitzvah, we do an ave or whatever it is, hopefully just mitzvahs. Doing it the right way has a very big impact by means of things that we don't see. Because there are many layers of reality that are non-physical, but equally as real as the physical, just that we don't we're not naturally aware of it. So we do a mitzvah, we do something, and it has an impact, and that impact you know, ripples up through layers of reality. And just a very, I wanna give a very simple muscle it's not quite a muscle but an example that's you know it's a best case scenario and a little bit exaggerated well it's not really exaggerated but it's it's an extreme case let's say but it, it's effective to illustrate the point let's say for example that you know a person we we get up in the morning and we're walking up the street and we actually woke up and said brachas like i mentioned drank our coffee and took a few minutes to wake up and we're actually in a good mood and walk up the street and we pass someone on the street and you know, it's Brooklyn. So most everyone else who they walked past this morning so far was just like, and kept walking and we walk past and we see them and we make eye contact and say, Oh, good morning. And give them like a genuine warm smile and keep walking. And 10 seconds later, we forgot that we even saw them. We certainly forgot that we gave them a smile, but you know what? That person who just walked past 10 people who scowled at them and was maybe having a difficult morning. And then we gave them a genuine warm smile and that could really change someone's mood. And then just imagine that that person is a preschool teacher who is on their way to teach a classroom full of, you know, a dozen one-year-old or two-year-old kids for, for the next six hours. And now those dozen one and two-year-old kids are going to be cared for by someone who's feeling healthy and emotionally satisfied and in a good mood instead of someone who's cranky for those six hours. So now the impact of that smile has escalated to a dozen little children and a dozen toddlers who've been cared for for six hours by someone who's cranky or someone who's feeling emotionally satisfied and loving is a very big difference across those dozen kids. And then those dozen kids all go home to their, to their homes and to their mothers. And then their mothers open the door and these kids come into the house. So now that smile has sent 12 happy, satisfied toddlers home to their mothers which now means that their mothers are going to be in a much better mood than they would be if they had these cranky kids who came home from having a cranky teacher in school all day. 
And then when their older siblings come home from school after a long day, they're now going to be greeted at the door by their mother who's feeling good and happy and in a good mood because we smiled at their kid's teacher in the morning. And then when those kids, those older kids after dinner go out and hang out with their friends to do homework after dinner, all of their friends get impacted, right? So because we smiled at one person in the morning, it, and again, I, it's a little bit of an extreme case scenario to assume that all these factors play out perfectly, but it's also not reasonable, not unreasonable that to an extent this could actually happen and play out, right? We have no idea how far one smile that we gave one person reaches in terms of just changing their mood a little bit and then impacting all the people they meet throughout their day and impacting all the people, all of those people meet throughout their day, et cetera, et cetera. And we could end up having an impact on 250 different people throughout the day because we smiled at one person in the morning and like this could actually happen for real. Right? So one little thing, and, and we'll never know, you will never know that that happened. We forget that we even met the person. We certainly don't remember smiling at them or we going about our day. And little do we know that we, there, there are 250 people at the end of the day who had a better day because we smiled at one person in the morning and forgot about it 10 seconds later. So we did something that had a tremendous impact beyond anything we could have envisioned and we'll never know about it. And this is the same of every action that we do, everything we think and say and do throughout the day because even if there are no people around and even if it's not an interaction with another person who's going to interact with other people afterwards, everything we do also has an effect in other layers of reality, these non-physical layers of reality that are connected and there's a, they're, they're all interface with each other and what we do, it ripples out through you know, the layers and it sort of goes up and it comes back down. And it has a very big impact. Everything we do makes a very big difference. And the reason is because most of what exists isn't physical, right? The whole entire physical universe, all of physical space and the entire physical universe is one of multiple layers of existence. You know, it's like the, the, the term multiverse is something that's used in science fiction, but the truth is that it, it's real. Like, we really are, we are in a universe, which is part of a multiverse of multiple different universes, each of which is, you know, has its own different nature. There's the one physical one that we experience. And then there are multiple different spiritual universes or layers of reality, each of which is as different from each other as they are from the one that we experience. And all of this is real and true. And everything that we do has this unseen impact that we don't see. And it travels up and it travels down and it, it brings divinity, which we don't see and we don't feel into our bodies, into our environments, into our surroundings. And, you know, our actions make a difference the same way that, you know, let's say that someone, you know, went to sleep in the 1500s or got frozen, you know, whatever in suspended animation. And then they got woken up now and they wake up and their head hurts and you're like, Oh, just take this little pill, swallow it. And your headache will go away. They'll be like, what do you mean? Like how is swallowing a pill going to make my pain go away? They have no concept because they didn't have painkillers 500 years ago. You don't have to go back that far, but I don't know exactly how far. So 500 will definitely do it. Right. They didn't have that. They have no, like, it's like, what you want me to put a pill in my, a little bowl in my mouth and swallow it. And my pain's going to go away. Like what, what are you saying? And yeah, if, you know, to us, it comes so naturally because we're so lucky to, you know, despite what the news tries to tell us because they make lots of money out of fear mongering and making us all feel frustrated. We are very lucky to live in the greatest time ever in the history of the universe to be alive. You, know, you go back and we're not even talking about the war. If you just go back a hundred years before the wars, just life. You know, the richest person in the world didn't have air conditioning in their home a hundred years ago. So people who are struggling today financially, almost all actually, thank you very much, actually have a better quality of life in absolute terms than the richest people in the world had just a hundred years ago. We have more conveniences that they had. We have more comfort than they had because there are comforts now that are just common even for people who aren't wealthy that didn't even exist then. 
You know, we're very, very fortunate. You know, a hundred years ago, someone got pneumonia. That was the end of it. Someone got a cold, someone got an infected cut. It was like, whatever, who knows? You know, Baruch Hashem today, we take so much for granted, but we live in such an amazing time to be alive. But it wasn't always like that. So for someone who's coming, we take it for granted. You have a headache, you take some Advil. That's it, generally. Um, for someone who's coming from a different world, they'll be like, well, how is just swallowing something going to take my pain away? What does one have to do with the other? They don't, they're not familiar with the concept of, of medications like that. I guess they always had herbal stuff and whatever. But And the fact is that if, if we take it for granted, if you wouldn't take it for granted and you wouldn't be aware of it, it would seem kind of strange. Like how is putting a little red circle thing in your mouth and swallowing it and make you feel better. And it's the same sort of thing. How is doing a mitzvah going to make a difference in the world? And the answer is because that little pill actually has chemicals in it. And now we actually know what's going on inside the body enough to be able to understand that the things that are in this pill are going to have an interact with the nerve cells in your body and make you stop feeling the pain. Same thing. The more we learn about how things really work, we understand, Oh, there's a system and there are rules and, Things work in a certain way. And when we do a mitzvah, when we do the right thing the right way, it has an impact on spiritual things that we can't see, which number one is important in and of itself. And number two, that also ends up having an, a benefit or a chain reaction that ends up back down here again. And it makes a real difference by means of pathways and things that we don't see and that we're not aware of, but it doesn't make them any less true aware of what Advil does when we take it, but it doesn't make it any less true. It still works. It's still real. And it's the same sort of thing. So, you know, the, the things that we do make a difference. And that's because there's a lot going on. Most of that which exists, we don't see and we're not consciously aware of, but it's real. And it really does make a difference. And Connecting to all of that and taking advantage of it is really going to be where his kashros becomes important. So going back to what we're talking about today, you know, the, the, the time that we're lucky to live in, we have, I mean, the, the luxuries that and your average, honestly, most homeless people today have a cell phone with a data plan, which means that, you know, being educated information not that long ago was a, a, a total luxury. The average person, the common person a couple hundred years ago was illiterate, didn't know how to read. Learning how to read and write was a luxury for the elite, for the uber wealthy, or the people who were so gifted that the uber wealthy people recognized that it was a good investment to get them educated. Those were the few people who knew how to read and write a couple hundred years ago, almost no one. Information education was a complete luxury. Today, there are homeless people who have the entirety of information known to mankind available at their fingertips on their cell phone. You know, so we, we live today with luxuries that were unimaginable not that long ago. I mean, 30 years ago, no one would, would have imagined that your average person on the street has a cell phone with Google and more computing power than, you know, the rockets that put man on the moon not that long ago. So... This luxury of information, the fact that, that the time that we live in has given us, you know, it's, I, I would say, you know, people talk about today it being the information age, right? Because that's ultimately the thing that we have that's so different today is that the totality of information is available to everyone. If you have the, the time and the patience to sit and sift through it and to look, you can find out just about anything you need to know for free on Google, just about. And that's amazing because information is one of the most valuable things that exists because information about any given thing empowers us to make the most of that thing. Information really is investing information is investing in information would be definitely among the greatest investments that a person can make in whatever it is that we're interested in. Information is power. Information is ability. Information is potential. And another, I would say one of the luxuries maybe that, you know, that 
we're that is very common today you know in a sense some of the problems that are increasing today that are sort of becoming more and more widespread and more and more relevant some of them in many ways are an actually an outcome of the extent of luxury that we have in our lives a hundred years ago, people didn't have time for most of the problems that you know that a lot of people are struggling with today. People opened their eyes in the morning, they got out of bed, they went to work in the field when they were six years old, from when the sun rose until the sun set, and then they ran home to try to get home before they got eaten by something. And if they worked hard enough all day, every day, they might be lucky and have a piece of bread to eat and some water to drink. That was basically, and it sounds like an exaggeration, but that was pretty much life for almost everyone for almost the entirety of human existence until you know until the industrial revolution until a couple couple hundred years ago that was kind of until a few hundred years ago let's say that was kind of what life looked like for most people and there are people alive today who that's what life was like i remember i mean my grandfather you know passed away a couple years ago but I remember growing up and hearing his stories from before the war. And it wasn't just because of the war. It was because this was life. When he was a kid, they were very young and they got up and they went out and they worked and they milked the cows and they worked in the field and they worked and worked and worked. And when they were, as soon as they were basically old enough to, to do anything, they put it to use and they worked just so that they could have food to eat. Literally, you know, this was what most people's lives for most of, of they didn't have time for a lot of the things that people struggle with today. Now, I guess the point of that is just to illustrate the extent or how good our lives are today, or how convenient and more comfortable, I should say, our lives are today. Baruch Hashem, and it's an amazing bracha. Um, another one of the... I get, I'm just debating about calling it a luxury. Relatively speaking, it's definitely a luxury in the context of, of, of all of human history. I would say today it's something that we shouldn't look, up, look at as a luxury because it's a good idea. But, you know, and again, it doesn't matter what we're doing. Anything that we're involved in, if we could find someone, you know, the coaches, being, having a coach is, you know, all the rage. But it makes a lot of sense. Because the first thing is information. Information is very empowering. Without information... We're very limited in what we can achieve. If we have all the necessary information, we can achieve anything that we have the technical ability to achieve once we have the information that we need. But there's also a limit to how much we can learn from just reading, from learning information. If we can speak to someone who has experience in doing what we want to do, who's done it before, who's done it for a lot of many times over a long period of time, the insight we can get from them is invaluable even compared to just information because now we're talking about information plus human experience plus someone who has insight that we can't get just from information because they've experienced that thing that we haven't experienced yet right and so you know to to get a life coach who's 21 years old and has an instagram account promoting themselves as a life coach and basically hasn't lived past high school you know good for them if they can get people to pay them well done but a, a real coach a real coach that's going to be valuable someone that has experience in the thing that we're interested in you know whether it's work whether it's personal things whatever it is it really can be invaluable it really can be a good investment because if there's someone who has real life experience with something that we want to connect to or get involved in and have no experience in that's a lot more valuable than just the information now, bringing all of this back to Hiskashos, what does this have to do with Hiskashos? Because spirituality and everything that exists spiritually, all of that is as real as the physical, as the things we do relate to. And it's as important. The problem is that we don't see it. We don't hear it. We don't feel it, we don't taste it, we don't smell it. So if there's something that we know is important and we don't have access to it, what's the first step? The first thing you do, Google. 
learn about it, right? And so the Alter Rebbe wanted to give this to us. The Alter Rebbe said that, or the Alter Rebbe's priority was that we should, every single Jew should have the opportunity and the ability to have their own personal, experiential, emotional relationship with Hashem as a person. And, you know, it's relatively easy for us to have emotional connections and relationships with people because we relate to people. We know people. You see someone, you already have a certain amount that you know about them. The more time you spend with someone, the more you talk to them, the better you get to know them, the more you know about them. We can't take Hashem out for coffee, right? Getting to know Hashem is not something we can do using our five senses, which is what we usually use to get to know people. So, as you know, if we just go based on our senses, Hashem, for all intents and purposes, might as well not exist because we have no way to sense or experience Hashem directly. What we can do is learn about Hashem, is go to the information. The more information we get about Hashem, the more we know about Hashem, the more Hashem can start to become real to us, the more we can start to actually have a personal, emotional, experiential relationship with Hashem. So the first step number one is Google. Step number one is information. Step number two, right? If there's something that we want to get better at, something that we want to succeed at, something we want to improve at, the first thing to do is to get the information that we need. Once we have as much information as we can get and we've gotten as much as we can out of the available information, if we want to take it up a level, it's a good idea to talk to someone who actually has experience, who's actually interacted with whatever it is that we want to get involved in. Someone who has experience, who can give us the insight that the information isn't going to give us. They give us the insight of how this information actually plays out in real time in the real world. So the question is, you know, who's going to fill this role of coach? Who's going to be the person who is in a position to give us insight and connection and experience into that which doesn't physically exist because we're all in the same boat. So the information that Alter Rebbe and all the Rabbeim gave us, that's what Chassidus is. Chassidus is the information that gives us the ability, if we take the time and put in the effort to actually learn it, to start to know a little about Hashem and over time to know more and more about Hashem so that we can start Hashem can start to actually become more real to us and we can start to develop a disposition towards Hashem and a relationship with Hashem. We have to know who and what Hashem is to be able to have a relationship. But there's still a limit to how much of a relationship you can have based on information. At the end of the day, we're people, right? And information is good and nice. First of all, it's very hard. Like, let's be real and honest. It's very hard to just by means of learning to get to the point where Hashem is real enough to us that we actually have feelings towards Hashem just by learning about Hashem. Is it possible? Yeah, it's possible. It's easier said than done. And it's a huge amount of work for every tiny little bit of progress that we make. It's, 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 a, it's a big ask. And there's... There, there, realistically speaking, there are very serious limits on the extent to which Hashem is going to become real just through learning. So what we need is, you know, the equivalent of a coach. What we need is someone who does have that real life experience and interaction that we don't have. The issue is that we're all in the same boat. Why are we all in the same boat? Because all of us have a neshama, which is part of Hashem. Then that neshama interacts with and sort of is is buried within a nefesh abahamis and a, a human animal soul the thing that makes a human body into a human being a human person alive is that human animal soul and the human animal soul is self-interested which it's supposed to be right everything the biological function of any living organism is to look after itself and to perpetuate its existence and the existence of its species which means that it's there's nothing wrong with the nature of the human animal soul being self-interested and looking after itself it's supposed to that being said as people with minds and the ability to understand abstract ideas which animals are not able to do it's our job to rise above that 
but it's always going to, to rise above it to the degree that Hashem becomes real to us is always going to be an uphill battle because our neshama, our godly soul, that part of Hashem within us has to always work through this human animal soul. And a human animal soul is self-centered. It's self-interested, which it's supposed to be. It's not a criticism. It's just the way it is. It's reality. And the neshama, if it wants to connect to Hashem, is always working against this opacity, this, this you know, thing that's in the way, which is this self-interested animal soul that looks after itself and just doesn't relate to divinity, doesn't relate to godliness. And it's always has to work against and through that barrier. And this is where a Rebbe is different. And a Rebbe is, is unique in that a Rebbe is a person, a human being with a body and with feelings and with a human experience. But minus the layers that separate it, minus the ego and the self-centeredness that covers over the part of Hashem that's inside of him. And that makes a challenge that introduces the challenge in our experience in terms of actually relating to Hashem and experiencing Hashem. So because a, a true tzaddik, a Rebbe, a Nasi, is a human being, minus the layers that get in the way to experiencing Hashem directly, there is now a person who we can connect to and relate to and have a relationship with who does have that insight and that connection and that experience of Hashem directly in a way that we can't. And this is why Shmuel Munka said to the Alter Rebbe, if you're not really a Rebbe, and you wrote the book Tanya and convinced all these people to take away their sense of pleasure in physical things, and you did that without really being a Rebbe, you, go, you deserve to go to prison. Implying that if you really are a Rebbe, then it's okay to do that. Why? Because if you really are a Rebbe, he's saying to him, then you have that transparency to Hashem, to divinity, and you are able to give your chassidim through their hiskashos, their connection with you, you can give them a connection to Hashem that's impossible for them to achieve on, achieve on their own. And by doing that, you will allow them to be able to really experience a relationship with Hashem in a way that's going to give them a deep experiential pleasure and satisfaction that's more than any physical pleasures will ever give them. It's not immediate pleasure the same way, but it's deeper and more deeply fulfilling and satisfying and certainly over the long term. And that's a good thing. But you can't take away people's pleasure in material things if you're not going to replace it with something else because you're just going to kill them. We can't go through life having no interests and nothing that makes us happy and nothing that makes us feel good and nothing that makes us feel satisfied and fulfilled. We'll die. A Rebbe has the ability, because a Rebbe has that transparency to Hashem, that transparency to divinity, by having a skashos, by having a connection with the Rebbe, we are able to get a taste of that and to experience through our connection with the Rebbe, a connection to Hashem in a way that we can't achieve by ourselves. And this is why it was okay for the Alter Rebbe to write Tanya if he's really a Rebbe, because then he can give people something that's even more fulfilling and satisfying because he is a Rebbe. He does have that insight and transparency and connection to Hashem in a way that we can't achieve on our own. And that's what we stand to gain. What we stand to gain through having a connection to the Rebbe is all of this, the majority of reality, all of which is true, all of this spirituality, all the layers that we don't see, all the things that happen when we do a mitzvah, all the things that, the, the benefits that happen from our thoughts and our deeds and our speech and the good things that we do and all of this that's going on that we don't see, but it's real. By having a connection to the Rebbe, we get to really have access to all of that that's going on because the Rebbe, is transparent. The Rebbe doesn't have the layers that stop us from seeing that and experiencing it. The Rebbe doesn't have those layers and the Rebbe can see and experience all of that, which means that by having a connection to the Rebbe, we are able to access all of that and to get the benefit and the meaning in life and the fulfillment 
that all of that can offer if we're able to experience it. And we can experience that by means of his kashrus. So his kashrus to the Rebbe gives us the ability to get the real fulfillment out of Hashem and Ruchnia, spirituality, divinity, and most importantly, our Torah and mitzvahs in a way that we would never be able to experience on our own. Um, I just want to end with a quick, on, we're talking about discussions, a quick story. Um, maybe we'll do two, one of the Rebbe, one of the Rebbe. And have I, I, I may have told these stories before. I don't know. Um, I have, you know what I'm going to say, but it's fine. So these stories, I mean, the Rebbeton story, you'll see, you'll know um, when I say it, why I'm saying it. It's like, I, I still can't get over it. And I still, it, it, it's a completely crazy story. But um, I heard it from someone in Crown Heights, the son of a person it happened to. So it's, it's legit. I'll tell you the name. Um, but the first story, a story with the Rebbe, I think maybe Nissim and Gel told the story. I think when he was a bocher in yeshiva in Canada, he was boarding somewhere with a family. And basically, long story short, the mother in this family had a history of very difficult pregnancies. And so while he was a bacha staying in the house one time, she was pregnant and it was very difficult. And the doctor basically told her and her husband that she needs to have an abortion. She's not going to be able to take the baby to term. She won't survive. The baby won't survive. And they, you know, I think called the Rebbe's office in the middle of the night, whatever it was. And the Rebbe basically told her like, you tell the doctors they have to do everything they have to do, everything they can do to, to bring the baby to term. And you have to follow the doctor's directives, but you have to, you know, keep the baby and bring it to term. And they did. And the doctors were very upset, but, you know, the doctors couldn't abort the baby if the mother didn't agree. That's not the way it works. So they brought the baby to term and the baby ended up being born, you know, Baruch Hashem, healthy. And so right away, you know, they got the Rebbe's bracha. So he called, he called the Rebbe's office, I think. And I think right away he called the Rebbe's office and left a message about the baby and the time the baby was born. I'm trying to t remember all the details specifically because it's been a while since I read it. Um, it's published on Chabad.org, I think. And I don't know if, I think if I recall correctly, it was maybe when he went in to like uh, later on, maybe traveled into New York from, from Montreal or Toronto, wherever it was to come and see the Rebbe in person, thank the Rebbe, whatever it was. And the Rebbe said, and so when he called in, he said, Baruch Hashem, you know, my wife had a healthy baby and this is this time, 2.30 in the morning, whatever it was, AM. The Rebbe says the time's wrong. It's like, I don't know, like the rabbi says the time is wrong. Check and find out I'm telling you the time's wrong. And so he says, okay, like the rabbi said, I should check and find out. I'll check and find out. So he calls the doctor, the obstetrician who delivered the baby. And the doctor says, you know, ask the doctor, when was the baby born? The doctor says, I don't know, look at the birth certificate. You have a copy of it. And she, you know, the father, the mother, whoever it was that was calling says, I know what the birth certificate says, but I have reason to believe that the time is not that the time on the birth certificate is not actually the time the baby was born. Is there any way we could find out? And he says, look, I didn't fill it out. The midwives, the nurses, whoever it was filled it out. You could go and ask them. And honestly, like, good luck. You know, they deliver multiple babies every day. The chances they remember, I don't know, but you could try. So they contact the, the, you know, the nurse's desk or midwives, whoever it was, and find out who was on staff that night when the baby was born and ask them when the baby was born. Same thing, check the birth certificate we have reason to believe it's wrong. I don't know. Basically, long story short, they asked them and told them things to remind them of when it was and what happened. And they said, you know, what? actually, yes, it's true. I remember that when we filled out the birth certificate, by the time we filled it out, it was a while after, you know, the baby was born and, you know, we cleaned it up and gave it the antibiotics and all things took care of it. And by the time we filled out the birth certificate, it was probably a half hour later. So the baby was born 20, 30 minutes before the time of the birth certificate. And he's like, okay. It's starting to get crazy, <laughs> comes back to the Rebbe and says that we looked into it and the time on the birth certificate was wrong. The baby was actually born 20, 30 minutes earlier, whatever it was. And so he asked the Rebbe, how did the Rebbe know that the time was wrong? And the Rebbe says, I was awake that night waiting for your baby to be born. I couldn't fall asleep. And I know that I was asleep before the time on the birth certificate. And, you know, this story is it's not about the fact that the Rebbe knew, like whoop-dee-doo, you know, there are you know plenty of miracle stories with the Rebbe. But the thing about this story that's so, to me, so moving is that it, the Rebbe 
got more mail than anyone else on planet Earth. And the Rebbe dealt with more people's issues than anyone else in the history of humanity. And six months or however long it was after these parents asked the Rebbe for a bracha, the Rebbe was laying asleep, laying awake at night, unable to fall asleep until this baby in a different country was born healthy. And so this is, you know, and this is, I think, also a very important part of his kashras that, that often gets missed. Because people talk about, you know, think of the Rebbe and how holy the Rebbe is and spiritual and miracles and all these things. And all of that's true and amazing, but all of that is irrelevant if the Rebbe is not, you know, a real person. Because like there's Hashem, you know, there's Hashem too. Like Hashem's pretty good. Right, but Hashem's not a person, which means that there are some issues that we have and some challenges in terms of having a relationship with Hashem. The whole point of a Rebbe is that a Rebbe is very human and thinks and cares about the chassidim. And you know, having discussions to a Rebbe means having discussions to someone who who's literally laying awake at night thinking about the problems of people who contacted him six months ago and live in a different country. Um, and the story about the Rebetzin, or a couple of minutes over, can I keep going for a bit? Yeah. So this, I heard this sto story firsthand from Dovi Brower, um, lives on Crown Street. So this story happened with his father, Professor Brower, who lives in Montreal. He's a professor in McGill University. And so this story happened, I think when this happened was in the nineties, he was at an academic conference. If I recall correctly, it was in Texas. I think he was at a big academic conference and he bumped into a professor there, someone very senior, I don't know, a professor, but someone very senior who had been on the board when he was offered his job decades earlier before that. So when professor Brower, Dr. Brower, whatever his official title is, was applying for a job in university, one of the people who was on the board at McGill who decided to offer him the job that he ended up taking was at this conference later on. And he bumped into him and this guy says to him, oh, you know, they meet and they're chatting. And he says, listen, I have to tell you this story. Because honestly, I swore I wouldn't tell you, but I'm going to tell you anyway. So he says, okay. So, so going back for a minute, before he got the job, I think what happened was he, yeah, he basically applied. He got offers from a few big universities for positions that he was looking for. And then he wrote to the Rebbe, he wrote a letter saying, I got positions, I got offers from, you know, these universities. And one of them was McGill and, you know, asked for the Rebbe's bracha and suggesting which one he should take. And the Rebbe eventually, I think, sent back, I don't know if he wrote McGill or circled McGill on the letter, but the Rebbe told him to take that position at McGill, which ended up taking and keeping for decades. Anyway, so this decades later, he's at this conference and the guy says, I'm going to tell you this story. He says, after we offered you a position before you accepted it, sitting in my office one day in the phone rings, I pick up the phone and there's a lady and she says, are you so-and-so? And I said, yes. And she said, are you responsible for offering a position to, you know, Dr. Brower? And I said, yes. And she says, okay, I need you to promise that you're never going to tell him about this phone call. And she says, my name is Mrs. Schneerson. I want to ask you a few questions. And she kept him on the phone for 45 minutes and asked him about the job description and the salary and the tenure and the, the raises he's going to get. And for 45 minutes, she grilled him on the phone about things that people's own mothers don't do research for them when they're an adult applying for a job. And, you know, and I've never heard a story like this before. And if this guy hadn't decided to break his promise and tell this story, we have no idea that things like this ever happened. Now, beyond what we know is speculation, but I think it's fair to speculate that it's not unreasonable that the Rebbitson might have made phone calls to the other, the faculty at the other universities who also offered him positions and spent 30, 45 minutes on the phone with them also. 
And, you know, I don't see any reason to assume that of all the questions the Rebbe got throughout the years for all the people, this happens to be the one thing that the Rebbeson got involved in and spent time working on. I would speculate it's a lot more likely that this is the one thing that we're lucky enough to have found out about because someone was nice enough to break his promise. Right? So, you know, the, the, the classic perception we have of the Rebbetzin is this quiet lady who's dedicated to the Rebbe and dedicated to the Chassidim through her dedication to the Rebbe and quiet at home behind the scenes. And she was quiet at home behind the scenes. For all we know now, she was working 16 hours a day, you know, together with the Rebbe, hands-on, making phone calls, doing research, figuring things out, making things happen. And if not for this one story, because this one guy broke his promise, we would have never known that the Rebbeton ever lifted a finger outside of, you know, very specific things that we know about. And now we have this insight, you know, we don't know the extent of it, but we know for sure it happened for one phone call. And how many adults who are applying for positions for a professor at a college have their mothers calling up the universities doing research for 45 minutes per university? Probably approximately zero. And the Rebbetson did that for him. And who knows how many more times the Rebbe did that. The Rebbetson did that for how many more people, you know, and it just, I don't think I need to explain why either of these are my favorite stories. Um, but yeah, you know, what we stand to benefit through having a connection to the Rebbe is the, what Shmuel Munkus said, the one thing that would justify the Alter Rebbe taking away our pleasure in physical things by writing Tanya, which is replacing it with something profoundly more satisfying and fulfilling, which is a connection to Hashem that we can actually experience in a tangible way. And the only way that we can experience that to that degree is through a connection to the Rebbe. And that's why Shmuel Munka said, you have to be a Rebbe to not deserve to go to prison after writing Tanya. And that's what Hiskashis is all about. Chaim.